Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office and the host of this series. Now, before we sign off to enjoy Thanksgiving and some Black Friday sales, we have a back to the basics topic to cover, accounting for pension plans. I'm happy to welcome back to the studio, Nicole Berman, a director in our national office who specializes in compensation-related matters. Frequent listeners will recognize Nicole from her popular podcast related to stock compensation, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today about pensions. And after listening to the episode, you have questions or just want to connect, you can find me and Nicole on LinkedIn. Now, let's get started. So Nicole, welcome back to the studio today. I'm looking forward to our conversation about pension plans. But before we actually jump into the guidance, can you just level set and help our audience understand exactly what we're going to be talking about? Sure. I, I want to focus today on defined benefit pension plans because there's some complex and unique guidance there. But just to describe the different types of plans that are out there, there's defined benefit and defined contribution plans. Defined contribution plans are what it sounds like when the company sets how much they're going to contribute to the plan, like your typical 401k plan. And so those are accounted for very simply as there's expense recognized when how much the company contributes. But they're subject to certain rules, so it has to be the company's only obligated to make contributions, there have to be separate accounts for each person, and that's a pretty narrow definition. Everything else falls into the accounting for defined benefit pension plans. Okay, and then to clarify, or just so people know, in this conversation, we're going to be talking about the accounting from the employer's perspective, not the plan perspective. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay, very good. And we'll focus on defined benefit pension plans, but there's also other post-retirement plans, the OPEBs. Those are really more for health care benefits, usually, like retiree health care. Those get very, very similar accounting. I'll mention a couple of points where there's differences, but generically, I'm going to say pension usually, but it's, it's meaning for both. Okay, yeah, that would be a lot to have to say each time, <laughs> both of those. So, so then, uh, Nicole, let's jump into our discussion. So what's one of the first things that companies should be thinking about when they're doing the accounting for a pension plan? Sure. One of the unique things about pension plan accounting is that you measure it only once a year. And so you measure that on the entity's fiscal year end, or if the entity has a, um, a year end that's not the, a month end, you can use a practical expedient to use the nearest month end. But that means you measure plan assets. Those are defined as you know, what the company puts aside to pay for these pension obligations. Those are any kind of investment. They could be anything from you know, cash to level three you know, type of investments, and, and you're going to measure those at fair value on the measurement date. And then you're going to measure the pension obligation, and that's based on projecting out what this promise is to pay pension benefits at retirement at maybe what, based on the plan terms, which may include, you know, salary increases or years of service or all those kind of things that factor in as well as the mortality of the participants and, and lots of actuarial assumptions as to how much you'll owe at the end, and then that's discounted back based on the discount rate to what is your obligation today. And then the unique thing about pension accounting is that you get to net the 
obligation with the assets and present a net number on your balance sheet. Like I said, you're setting this measurement once a year, and that actually sets your pension cost for the year. You don't have to remeasure at each interim date, you just roll forward those balances. And all of that was part of the accommodation when the guidance was put out to put these things on the balance sheet. You only need to measure them once a year. Yeah, it'd be a lot of work to work with your actuaries every quarter to try to remeasure this, so right. it makes sense. And then, but are there any cases where you would remeasure at an interim date? There are. We'll talk about those. Those are if there's a significant event during the year, that's when you do an interim remeasurement. Okay, so we'll get to that. So then, why don't we move on to our next topic? And we were just talking about how costs were set. So how are pension costs determined? Right. So those, the pension cost is actually made up of a lot of different pieces. There's service cost, which is sort of the cost of I'm an employee working that particular year. And then there's interest costs, which is the cost of that, uh, carrying that obligation for the year. And then that's offset by you expect your assets to have a return, so it's offset by that. And then there's some amortizations of balances that you get to defer. And that's part of the pension accounting as well, is that you, get, you don't have to recognize all of those balances immediately, you can defer them over a period of time. And there was some new guidance that came out that a couple years ago that requires companies to present, instead of that pension cost as one number, it's now presented separately. So the service cost is presented in income from operations, but all the other pieces are outside of operations in one or, or more lines, but they're separate. And along with that, only the service cost is what gets capitalized if, for example, you capitalize your employee cost for building inventory or fixed assets. Okay, that's helpful. So then can you move on to anything else um, that's unique about pension accounting? Sure. So the deferral of costs is what's really unique about pension accounting. You measure once a year, like I said, but when you measure with all those actuarial assumptions, you're, you're not going to get that exactly right. And right. so there's what's called actuarial gains or losses each year. When you remeasure, you sort of true some of those up to what you know today. And those gains and losses, you don't have to recognize immediately. The guidance allows you to defer those in AOCI and amortize them over the um, average service period of the participants. And then there's even a corridor that if that change is less than like a 10% threshold, you don't have to amortize anything in a particular year. So it's really pretty, can, can be spread. And the thinking there was that these are, you know, long-term obligations and assets that are going to be volatile and maybe they'll offset over time without even having to recognize these lots of gains and losses. And so the guidance allows you to have this deferral model where you amortize these gains over the service period. Some companies choose though, that's the minimum amortization. Some companies choose that you can recognize costs immediately. We saw a trend like five, six years ago where a number of companies started moving, changing their policy basically and moving to the immediate recognition. Uh, we didn't see a huge trend, but, but a, a good handful of companies did that, some big ones then they are subject to all the gains and losses going forward, but they don't have any deferred amounts anymore that because it's a retrospective application, those kind of 
all got caught all up. got caught up right. and now it's just they're subject to the volatility and then i'm guessing once you make that change there's no going back that's right yes it's a one-way street <laughs> that's right that's right okay so then nicole that makes sense and you talked about recognizing costs immediately but so does that mean you can recognize all your costs immediately or only some of them that's a good point i i was talking about uh, actuarial gains or losses there's also prior service cost which is when you have a plan amendment and you change the benefits. Any change in the benefits, either good or bad, is called prior service cost or credit. And those amounts are required to be spread over time. You can't recognize those immediately. Good or bad, I'm assuming. Good or bad. Yeah. And so um, when you have an amendment or a change in your plan, that difference in your obligation is, is considered prior service cost. That gets deferred and spread over the average service period of the active participants at the time when you make that amendment and that is set for that amendment you don't you don't true up that amortization period ever it's sort of tranched each amendment has its own service period and you take that as you know over that period the only point in time where you would change is if all or almost all participants become inactive and that's true, actually, of actuarial gains or losses as well. If all or all your participants are inactive, you switch then to spread it over their average life, not just their service life. You, you switch to their mortality life. Right. So then absent all or almost all your participants being inactive, if you have one of these planned amendments, you set the amortization period, then you, you'll know I'm going to have this amount of expense every year for the next X number of years. That's not going to change. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And then you're saying that if you make an amendment that almost everyone becomes inactive, then even past amendments, the amortization period would change. Right. So once everybody's inactive, then you switch to the lifetime rather than the service life. And a good point to remember about that is that if you make a plan amendment where you freeze the benefits, the term inactive is actually not defined in the standard. It could be inactive meaning you're actually not working anymore, or you could define it as not earning benefits. Mm. And so when companies freeze their plans, like they say, okay, you've earned whatever you've earned to date, but you're not gonna earn anything in the future. You just will pay out this amount. That's called freezing a plan. And at that point then, your participants are no longer earning future benefits, and so you can have a policy to define inactive as no longer earning benefits and move to expected life, which would use typically spread the expense out even further. Right. That's one that companies sometimes miss because they're actually making a policy choice at that point in time, and if they don't do it at that point in time, then you're sort of caught up in having set your policy as defining it as inactive as working or not working and so then you can't you can't change going forward so that's one to remember but so that's something then that if you hit that event that you've frozen your plan you can make the election at that point in time right all right that's that is definitely helpful to know because i know that's something now a lot of companies continue to reevaluate their pension plans and the benefits they're providing so this uh, could be something that's helpful yeah that's right okay um, then why don't we move on? You talked about plan freezes, which I know can be a very big event, having dealt with some of those. But are there any other events that require specific accounting? Right. So we started off with measuring once a year, but we said if there's any significant yes. event, you're going to do an interim measurement. So the things that are considered significant events 
are significant curtailments. So that is like a plan freeze. You're, you're curtailing your plan. You're kind of taking away. People are no longer accruing benefits. Or if you have what like a reduction in force where you have fewer people than you anticipated earning benefits, that is going to drive your uh, a reduction in your service life, and that's considered a curtailment. And so at that point in time, if it's significant, and we usually use like a 10% threshold, although it's not defined, it's sort of judgmental mm -hmm. between 5 and 10% maybe, but, but if it is a significant curtailment, then you do accounting at that point in time, and you, you remeasure the plan, and you figure out what the impact of that curtailment is, but then you offset those balances that were deferred. And so depending on which direction your, your curtailment might offset the balances there, and you might not have any gain or loss, or it might go one direction or another, but that's part of the accounting for the curtailment is offsetting those deferred balances. And you do that when, when you make the amendment, if it's an amendment. But if it's based on employees terminating, you first have to determine if it's a curtailment gain or loss. And then if it's a loss, you do it when it's probable. But if it's a gain, you wait until those employees terminate. Okay. And then how about settlement? Right. Settlement is when you basically settle off that obligation for an individual or the whole plan. Like you might purchase an annuity and let an insurance company take it over or you might make a lump sum payment to pay out an individual. When you have a settlement, that is significant. That's a significant event. And the guidance actually puts the significance threshold at if the total cost of that settlement is greater than service and interest cost for the year, then you have to recognize it. If it's beneath that, you can have a policy at that threshold and say, I'm going to wait and not do anything and wait till the next remeasurement. Oh, okay. And so like if you just do a one-off settlement for one you don't have participant, to do yeah. likely you you're not going to have a remeasurement at that time, but if you have a, you know a big lump sum window and you have a lot of people that have picked it up then it might be big enough to trigger settlement accounting. And settlement accounting, it's not just looking at, oh, what did I pay versus what did I think I was going to have to pay? That's not the settlement gain or loss. That's a, oh. that's a common yes, misconception, yes. right? It is actually you look at what uh, you remeasure the plan at, with all the latest assumptions, and then you basically are pulling forward a portion of deferred balances. And so if you settled out 20% of your plan, you're going to pull forward 20% of your deferred amounts, and that's your settlement gain or loss. Okay, wait, I don't, I, so I have done pension plan accounting, uh, but not to all allow settlements. So explain that again, what exactly are you doing? Sure, so you're, you're remeasuring the plan, yeah. but then you're going to uh, look at how much of the plan did you settle, what percent of the plan did you settle, and then you're gonna bring forward some of the deferred amounts that were sitting in AOCI, so if, you're settling at 20% of your plan, you're gonna bring forward 20% of your deferred amounts. So your and point that's being, your settlement yeah, so your loss. point being, you're not going to stick with your original amortization then, but you're gonna recognize some of that amortization immediately based on the percentage of the plan. Right, right. Because the basis for amortizing is because people were gonna be around for a long time and-, and Right, gain, so now you know, if they're not and around- now if they're settled out, right. we should pull forward some of those amounts. Right, instead of just leaving them to, 
um, come through in the future. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Right, but you don't you don't pull forward the prior service cost. Like I said, the prior service cost has that full that that set amortization, and even in a settlement, you don't you don't pull forward that unless you're also terminating the plan. When okay. you terminate the plan in full, everything gets recognized. But if you're just settling out, a, a, doing a partial settlement, you don't you don't pull that. Far. So this is a good reminder. So it gets it's it's, it's it, very tricky. There's a lot of pieces. I was going to just say I think this is a good reminder for anyone that even if they're familiar with pension plan accounting, that if they're dealing with a special event, they should go look at the guidance and make sure they're following it correctly. That's right. Yeah. Maybe to wrap things up, I have a couple final questions. First, you mentioned at the beginning that there are some differences between pension plans and other post-employment benefit plans, OPEB plans. Um, so can you just highlight a few of those for our listeners to think about? Sure. A couple of things that I was thinking about is um, like the assumptions that you use in your determining your obligation. For, for OPEB plans, you're going to have different assumptions mm -hmm. like your healthcare trend rates and things like that. So those will all c come up. The other thing is that the amortization period is different. In, in OPEB plans, the amortization period is the period to full eligibility, which is a little different than the service period, but, but it's a similar notion. Okay, that's helpful. And there's some additional disclosures like around the, the types of assumptions you need and things like that. So for disclosure purposes, make sure you're, you're in the right guidance. Okay, and that's actually a perfect segue into my final question, which is around disclosures, because I know um, in 2018, the FASB actually put out some new guidance on disclosures, which was intended to simplify and I think did simplify. So can you give any highlights from that? Sure. It actually took away a number of disclosures of things that are were more like unique situations that they didn't feel needed to be a specific requirement. They also took away like the healthcare rate. There was a required sensitivity analysis. They, they eliminated that. And then they really just added a couple of disclosures of a little more information is required around if you have one of these significant events, the sort of why it happened or, or what, what happened exactly, which I think most companies already provided. So I guess the takeaway is maybe take a look at this new new guidance and you may want to adopt sooner. Right, because I think it's, so it's effective for calendar year and PBEs on January 1, 2020, and the non-PBEs, January 1, 2021. But I guess to your point, if it's simplifying things, um, no need to wait to adopt. Right. Good. All right, Nicole, thank you very much for joining me today. Very helpful discussion, and looking forward to having you back. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy Thanksgiving. I'm certainly thankful for all you listeners out there. I hope you join me again next week for a discussion of the accounting for valuation allowances, the second installment in our periodic series on the accounting for income taxes. This is a topic with a lot of complexities and misconceptions. So even if it's something you're not focused on now, I think we'll all learn something helpful before year end. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And I'd love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn with questions, suggestions, or just to follow me for the latest content. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.